Welcome into the latest episode of Fish Bites. As always, it is Danny Martinez here with you to talk some Marlins baseball. And if we're being honest, not to talk about a lot of wins because there are many wins happening right now. Now, if you've heard me, you've known my stance on this, right? This is not the year to be talking about wins and losses. Matter of fact, the entire last episode was a conversation on how I might even be a little bit more impatient than some of the fans where I want wins and losses being of significance as soon as next year. Some fans, most fans, at least from people that engage with me and and the polls that we've sent out, care about that a little bit more strongly in 2021. But if you're one of the minority that care about that at the priority level, for 2019, it has been a tough week. It has been a tough week and a half, really, because unless the Marlins are playing the Phillies, it doesn't seem like there's much good to talk about at the end of the day and at the end of the box score. Of course, there's bright spots. Of course, there's pitching performances that we can highlight. There's things all across the organization that are positive. That'll happen in a rebuild. But at the major league level on a major league podcast, you better believe that I can't sit here and talk with you 45 minutes about the major league wins and losses. So what are we going to speak about today? Well, make no mistake, of course, we're going to have our performances of the week, our pitching performance of the week, our hitting performance of the week. But there's really two or three dialogue pieces that I want to get to today before Dr. Ron Cox comes to join us. This is going to be a really special interview. I'm really excited to have him on. He's going to be on the latter part of the show. You know, he's going to give us a lot of insight. I'll leave it at that. A, a brilliant guy, someone who I haven't spoken uh, back and forth, many emails with about baseball, his mind, the way that he can uh, illustrate some of the thoughts towards this Marlins organization, towards the game of baseball. I think you're going to be really excited for it. But before we jump into that, let's go ahead and get into the discussion. There's three things that I really want to talk about today. The first one is the fact that the international free agency signing period opened up and the Marlins were big time players in it once again, a year after being one of the biggest players in the international free agent signing period of last year. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Second, we're going to go have a little recap, right? If you're listening to this, it's likely in the all-star break. We're going to recap a bit about what we saw with the Marlins in this first half. I wrote an article called, uh, you know, the Phantom of the Marlins for Fish Stripes because there was a lot of back and forth. There were a lot of extremes. There was basically two teams, one organization, but two major league baseball teams. We're going to look at the two the two polarizing ends of what the Marlins were in this first half. And then I'm going to take a shot at talking about this anemic offense because it's the one thing that everyone kept bringing up. And I understand. I mean, listen, you know, yesterday they were recording this on a Sunday. Saturday, the Marlins, of course, they go out and they score five and they hit 15. But before that, there was a, what, a 17 inning uh, scoreless streak. There's there's not much to discuss when we're talking about the offense, unless it comes from the young guys. And then when a young guy like Brian Anderson is out, then goodness gracious, where's it going to come from? So uh, everything that was sent to me is what do we do about the offense? How do we resolve this offense? We're going to take a look at what we need to have and what we need to be looking forward to, to solve this anemic offense. We're going to start with international signings. Listen, if you've heard me, if you've known me, this is something I've said this story multiple times. When I went to the the Derek Jeter town hall that he had the first year here, the only things that I brought up was the international market and do something about the stadium and the colors, right? It's something I, I will always beat that drum that I'm so excited. 
that the stadiums have changed, that they have the upgrades, the food concession is better. And on the baseball side, it's not that they listened to me. I'm no one. They didn't listen to me, but clearly they had someone up there that said, hey, you know, it'd be a great idea since we're in South Florida and we have a lot of international uh, fans. How about we start diving into this international market and and forget the marketing side of it? How about just because it makes sense, because it makes baseball sense. It makes financial sense. It's what the leading teams in the organizations or rather the leading organizations in the league are doing they dive into the financial or rather into the international pool and that's exactly what the marlins have done over the last two years this year thus far right the period is incredibly open it doesn't close until next year's uh international free agency signing period opens so far they have 11 international free agents that they have signed it's really highlighted by three names and at the end of the day listen i haven't seen any of these kids. These are 16-year-old kids, okay? These are reports coming off of international scouts. Anyone who's told you otherwise, unless you're Jesse Sanchez or one of these international scouts that are very limited in baseball organizations, they're just blowing smoke. But at least from the information that we have from those in the know, the leading three is shortstop Jose Salas. He's ranked number 10 on Pipeline's uh, top rankings of international free agents. He's also known as the most advanced bat in this entire international free agency pool. The number 24 ranked prospect, Junior Sanchez, also a shortstop. And then a shortstop by the name of Ian Lewis. He's unranked but highly regarded across scouts. He's from the Bahamas. Those are the three names that pop off of the 11 that the Marlins announced that they have officially signed. Now, the thing with international free agency is the rankings mean very little at this point. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. was not ranked number one. Fernando Tatis Jr. was not ranked number one. These rankings are are very preliminary. So we might have a gem that's not listed in one of those top three. We might see someone like a Junior Sanchez who's ranked 24th actually end up being a better ball player player and big league ball player than Jose Salas, who's ranked number 10. But when you're looking at three highly ranked up the middle athletes with all having plus hit tools, including Jose Salas, who again, most advanced bat in the pool, then you know that the Marlins are doing something right. Now, one of the more interesting stories with this one is that uh, the number seven overall ranked player, also a shortstop, Yiri Cape from Cuba is apparently signing with Miami in next year's free agency. So the reports from different outlets state that they already have a handshake agreement. As a matter of fact, Cape had in his own Instagram, Marlins Major League Baseball or Marlins ball player. In his own picture in Pipeline with the rankings, it's in a Marlins hat. So this looks like a uh, rather strong handshake agreement. But with the Marlins not having, I believe the rumor number is $3.5 million at the moment in their pool because they spent it on other players, the belief is that they will wait until next year where their pool regenerates. And then Yiri Cape will also be part of that signing. Incredible. Now, the reality is that a team can get some money and can try to take Yiri away from the Marlins. That is possible. But this seems, from the Instagram posts, to the fact that he's wearing a Marlins hat in a neutral website like Pipeline. All signs lead to the Marlins coming out with the number 10, the number 7, the number 24, and a highly ranked individual, highly regarded individual in Ian Lewis from this pool.
Technically, Cape would then be from next year's pool, but nonetheless, the point stands. It would be an impressive haul a year after getting the top consensus free agent in Victor Victor Mesa and his little brother, who's possibly, many would say, even performing better than he is right now throughout the organization. It is the biggest single thing that the Marlins organizational group has done differently. And it is incredibly important that they have done that. Without being players in the active international market, you're not going anywhere without spending a lot of money or having the most top shelf domestic scouting department and luck in the draft possible. Good organizations, smart organizations win on the international front. The Marlins, for the first time in their history, seem to be going that way. I told you that I wrote an article, Phantom of the Marlins, for Fish Stripes. Go check it out. This team has been two entirely different entities throughout their first two quarters, or their first half, of the 2019 campaign. You can't really split the MLB season of 162 games into two quarters, or into four quarters, rather. But if you take 41 games and 41 games, you get roughly two separate quarters. The Marlins in their first 41 games were 10 and 31. We all know that start, right? Historically bad all across the board. The only thing that was even keeping them with 10 wins was the pitching. Every single day we would see the same blueprint. The pitching would keep them in the game. The bats would be non-existent. They would lose. The pitching would keep them in the game. The bats would be non-existent. They would lose. It led them to a 10-31 and 31 start where they were at the bottom of the National League in any kind of offensive statistic that you could find. The pitching was holding its own. But this was not the team. This was not the plan. I wrote in my article, starting 10-31 and 31 was not the plan. Louis Brinson being demoted was not part of the plan. The lowly attendance was not part of the plan, and so on and so on. But then something changed. Because over their next 41 games, they went 22 and 19. 22 and 19 is an 87 win pace team. You take that 22 and 19, that second quarter of the season, and you spread it over 162 games, that would be on pace to win 87 games. A completely different team than the team that went 10 and 31 and was on pace to lose 122 games. 122 games on pace losses versus the second quarter where they were suddenly an 87-win team. Miami got to see the awful parts of a rebuild and got to see the beauty because we've dissected this before and I don't have to go much into it. As a matter of fact, in, in the article I wrote, listen, this isn't an analysis piece. It, it, it doesn't have to be an analysis piece because as long as you pass third grade, you're going to be able to see what happened. Young offensive pieces, a Harold Ramirez, a Garrett Cooper, a Brian Anderson, a George Alfaro started playing up to their part. The fact that Harold Ramirez and Garrett Cooper weren't even a part of that 10 and 31 club tells you a little bit about the, the solution here. Suddenly they're playing well. Suddenly they're winning series against the Cardinals, the Phillies, the Brewers, the Padres, the Mets. They're splitting against the Indians. They're drawing what was one of the most exciting Saturday games that I've been to. 
where the atmosphere is lively. I sent out a tweet. A lot of people, like something like 7,000 views or something to that extent, saw it, where Marlins Park was lively for the first time in a very long time. Because, well, the fans had something to come out and root for. It wasn't just the pitching. We didn't just have to continue saying, well, the Marlins have the seventh best ERA in baseball. Well, they have the eighth best FIP in baseball. At some point, people get tired of pitching. They want hitting. Harold Ramirez stepped up to the plate. Garrett Cooper stepped up to the plate. A struggling Brian Anderson and George Alfaro in the first quarter of the season became what we expected them to be. Suddenly, the Marlins weren't that bad anymore. Suddenly, every other headline was that the Mets are going to fire Callaway because look at what just happened to them in the Marlins. That the Phillies are going to implode on themselves because look what just happened to them in the Marlins. How can the Brewers allow 16 runs against the Marlins? What was it? Lowly? That was the headline every single. They were not very creative. Every single uh, sports team's opponent's team's beat writer that would be the headline. Phillies lose series versus the lowly Marlins. Brewers give up 16 to the lowly Marlins. The lowly Marlins were suddenly playing very well. 87 win pace in the second quarter of the season. Now make no mistake though. How has the third quarter of the season started? Is it looking more like the first quarter or the second quarter? Because I'll tell you what, they're not an 87-win pace team right now. This third quarter has been tough. Now, have they gone up against very hot and good teams? Absolutely. The Nationals, the Braves. But we're starting to see the same pattern. Where the players are performing on the mound. And the offense is dead with their bats. So how do you solve that anemic offense? Would you be angry at me if I tell you that the word is patience? Would you be angry with me if I tell you that the word is patience? Because here's the situation. We do have to understand that Brian Anderson got hurt and that that will make a difference. See, when you have a Braves lineup or a Cubs lineup of eight, nine hitters that can come in and perform at a replacement level or better, a much better, you're okay when you lose a Brian Anderson. But when the Marlins have four, maybe four, five players that you can really say are playing above replacement level, and then one goes down, it changes the dynamics of that offense. It changes everything about it. So I'm, I'm sorry to tell you this. But at least when you ask me about the offense and how we uh, give some life, we wait. The answer is patience. The answer is that Isan Diaz, who's representing and starting for the, for the Futures game, actually, he's actually hitting third in a potent lineup. We wait for him to come up. Amante Harrison, who was also selected to the Futures game, one of the highest designations you could get as a minor leaguer, but is unfortunately not going to be able to play with a wrist injury. We wait for him to come up. Lewis Brinson that has been demoted and just has decided to go and tear through the AAA. One of the highest OPSs in AAA since his time being there. You wait for him to come back up and hopefully he's made adjustments. By the way, go check out and find my tweet where I 
Uh, we discuss a little bit about his new stance and his new mechanics. Looks very different. I'm not sure if the results will be any different when you get to Marlins Park, but you will get an incredibly new different swing and mechanics from Lewis Brinson when you go see him live next time at Marlins Park whenever he gets promoted. The answer to the anemic offense is nothing but patience. We have to wait. We have to wait till Brian Anderson gets healthy again. We're about to talk about George Afro because he's been on a tear. Harold Ramirez has stabilized, but he's still been performing. We have to wait until the lineup is filled with youth and talent rather than, if we're being honest, stop gaps. There is no answer for the 2019 Miami Marlins offense. There doesn't need to be. The answer is whether the 2020 offense, whether that 2020 win-loss, if they're the answer for the future. I believe they are. Which is why patience is how we resolve this anemic offense. Let's talk about the pitching performance of the week because, quite frankly, it's a great one. Jordan Yamamoto continues to show that he belongs in this rotation. Now, whether that remains the case whenever Pablo Lopez gets back healthy, I'm not sure. But Jordan Yamamoto decided to go to Atlanta, six innings pitch, no earned runs, two hits. He loves holding teams to two hits, by the way. It's a pattern. Seven strikeouts, four walks, with one of them being intentional. As Freeman strikes out. So a good first inning for Jordan Yamamoto. Marquez is here. Goes down looking at the slider. And goes down on three pitches. Two away. Back-to-back strikeouts for Yamamoto. Well, the slider working well for Yamamoto. 95 miles an hour. Yams is everything that the Marlins would have wanted for a quote-unquote fourth piece in a Christian Yelich trade. He showed his continued command, but there was something new that should get everyone excited, and it got me incredibly excited. Because, see, it's not every day that Jordan Yamamoto throws a fastball and the UC 95 miles per hour pop up on your screen or on the scoreboard. But it happened against the Braves. It's the hardest pitch he's thrown as a major leaguer and likely amongst the hardest he's thrown in his career. It's important not just because we like bigger numbers. It's important because added velocity to his type of arsenal that he has and his type of command can do the same thing for him that it did for Pablo Lopez. If you recall last year, Pablo Lopez gets called up. It's kind of a spot start. He, he performs really well and he sticks in the rotation. But part of that was his added velo. If Jordan Yamamoto has suddenly ha- can touch 95 while controlling at the elite way that he can, with an unpredictable arsenal of six pitches, two variation of curveballs, two, three variations of his fastball. You're suddenly looking at a throw-in piece that we were hoping might stick in the back of the rotation and start saying, hmm, top half stuff. Jordan Yamamoto, absolutely the pitching performance of the week. As for the hitters of the week, we have three candidates for you. But really, it's just going to be one designation. George Alfaro has decided to come back from being injured and remind everyone why he's the seventh-ranked catcher in baseball if we're talking about war, wins above replacement, player value. Seventh in baseball, nine in the NL, seventh in all of baseball. Over the last week, he's hitting 455, and he's slugging 727. He has 10 hits over those six games, three doubles, and one homer. We'll see if he adds anything to that today. Starlin Castro is your second candidate. 
getting his trade value up a little bit. 360, 385, 560 with nine hits over six games, two doubles and a homer. An almost identical line from Miguel Rojas, someone that we highlighted last week. We chose him as the player of the week last week. 360, 370, 560, nine hits, two doubles, one home run. This is this is a beautiful mixture here because Brian Anderson isn't is isn't playing right now of youth in George Alfaro, a piece that's somewhat in the middle. He could be here part of the future. He might not be in Miguel Rojas, but he's definitely the captain and leader of this team right now. And then a player who is most likely not going to be here, Starlin Castro. For me, obviously, the designation is George Alfaro. Listen, when you're hitting 455 and slugging well over 700, you're going to get that designation. And it's not just singles. It's three doubles. It's a homer. It's going the opposite way. It's the player, once again, I will repeat, that we saw earlier in the year, which was a top 10 catcher in baseball. Entering Sunday, he's the number seven ranked catcher in baseball. That's impressive. <laughs> That's impressive when you're talking about replacing a JT Ramuto and immediately the guy who comes in who gives you many more years of control is performing the way he has. It's why even when the Marlins lose eight of their last 10, we can look at certain spots and say, yep, but wait till next year. Wait till Isan Diaz. Wait till Monte Harrison. Wait till a free agent addition. Wait until improved Lewis Brinson. Wait till they're here with this starting ERA that's ranked top 10 in baseball. Wait until they're here with this defense behind them that's more than competent. Wait until they're here with a healthy Brian Anderson, with a Garrett Cooper, with a Harold Ramirez. Win-loss might not matter this year. For some, not me, it might not even matter next year. But the performances of these future pieces and that starting staff, it matters every single day. That'll be it for me today. We have Dr. Ronald Cox coming on, one of the brightest minds that we're going to have on this episode and on this podcast. I can guarantee you that. Joining us now is Dr. Ron Cox. He's a professor of politics and international relations at Florida International University, who has been a Marlins fan since the franchise started, even attending the expansion draft in 1992 with his wife, Laura Lee. He has written extensively on political economy, including a baseball book titled Free Agency and Competitive Balance in Baseball, published by McFarland Press in 2006. Ron, how are you today? Very good. I'm very happy to be here, Danny. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, you know, they won't know this, but obviously you and I have gone back in emails. And before I just had you on, I was talking in my section about how excited I was for this. The fact that, you know, discussing baseball with you 
over email has been a pleasure for me. So I'm happy to share that love with everyone else. Uh, Ron, I want to give you the floor to start off. And I want you to just tell everyone a little bit about yourself and about uh, how you came to love the Marlins. Sure. It, it worked out rather beautifully because everything was so synchronized when I first got my job, which was the first tenure-track job I've ever had, and I still have that job at Florida International University. I was hired in 1991. That was about the same year that everything you know, came to fruition in terms of the Marlins being awarded a new franchise. Uh, so my wife and I were able to attend the expansion draft where my wife sort of fell in love with baseball. She had been a sports fan, but had never been a baseball fan. So we go to this expansion draft. She ends up winning all sorts of freebies, including an autographed baseball, um, a hat, I think even a shirt. So she was pretty hooked, and she was excited about becoming a baseball fan. Uh, so we start with attending a bunch of games the first year. We become season ticket holders about a couple of years later. I officially make the switch to the Marlins as my number one team in 1995. And I demoted the St. Louis Cardinals to my second team, <laughs> despite having you know grown up in Missouri in a small town of Dexter, about three hours south of St. Louis. I come to Miami and I realize the Marlins need me a lot more than the Cardinals need me because the Cardinals have all of these fans. They have a wide radius of fan support, but the fish are just getting started. They need a fan base. Looked pretty good those first three years, but it's been pretty rocky, a lot of ups and downs. That's even made me more attracted to the team. We were here for all the ups. We've been here for all the downs. We've been pretty consistent, 20 to 40 game season ticket holders. We saw every playoff game and every World Series game played in Marlins Park, actually pro player, um, um, which uh, occurred in 1997 and 2003. Mm-hmm. In fact, as I sit here in my office, I'm looking up at the ceiling, I'm looking at the 2003 World Series banner and the 1997 World Series banner. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, because, and I'll tell you what, when we go to, yeah, we go to Jupiter for the spring training games, you you sit amongst the Cardinals fans because they obviously stare that they uh, share that stadium, rather Roger Dean, and you really learn to love that Cardinals fan base to a certain extent, right? They're still an opposing team, but you learn to love how much they care for baseball and how much they care for their Cardinals. You hardly ever hear a story like yours, which is, you know, I was uh, born and raised a Cardinals fan, and then I came over here and and I've started to love the Marlins. And like you said, they needed me more than the Cardinals did. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right about that. Uh, have, do you have any friends that give you a hard time the fact that you kind of had, like you said, demoted the Cardinals to your second team, or is mostly everyone okay and on board with you being a Marlins fan? This is a great question because I get my love of baseball from my mom's side of the family, and particularly her her father, my grandfather. They were huge baseball fans, very big Cardinal fans. Um, my aunt is also a big Cardinals fan, and I thought, how do I break it to them? I didn't want to break it to them right away in 95 when I made the official switch. But I figured I've got to tell them sooner or later. But not only did they completely understand, they adopted the fish as their second team, which, um, which I guess they understood how passionate I'd already become about going to Marlins games. And it wasn't if I made a calculated switch. This was an emotional switch. I got so attached to just going to the park and just being with a group of fans, kind of starting our own little community, 
including a lifetime friend, Ralph Otto, who has attended practically every Marlins game since the team first was founded. He's had some health issues recently, so he hasn't been able to attend games as consistently this season. But basically, just a group of us have, have continued to, uh, to go to games together. Hmm. Well, hopefully, whatever health conditions are there subside and, and he can get right back to, to where, where I guess he feels at home. It's nice knowing that there is absolutely, for as much as the national media and even some within Miami, if we're being honest, talk about the Marlins fan base. You know, those of us that are in here, and I won't even pretend to be on the same level as you. I mean, come on, I was a baby when the Marlins were were beginning their organization and, and their path, really. But it's it's nice to know that when you're in there, there really is a family. There are a certain amount of individuals that love this team as if it is their family. Uh, you said that you've seen the ups and downs, and I kind of want to get a little bit of that from you. Um, I'll lead with the question of how you feel about the organization right now, but you can go as far back as you want to tell us about your journey kind of as a fan and then end up with what you think about what they're doing and, and the rebuild and the organizational changes that we're seeing now. It's, it's been a, a fascinating history. Of course, we've gone through several different ownership groups. We've had some devastating moments in our history that are, that are very closely proximate to the highest moments that the franchise has ever experienced, uh, particularly in 97 when we were in the World Series only to see that team dismantled. And of course, we had the first ownership change. And I was pretty optimistic without ownership change. And I thought that John Henry was probably the best owner that this franchise could ever possibly have because he was deep-pocketed. He appeared to have a commitment to the team. Mm -hmm. Major League Baseball intervened what I thought was very callous fashion because it was mixed with threatening to relocate our franchise, which was a very difficult period. And then you did have this ownership swap where Jeff Loria came in. And I had read enough baseball history to be very worried about Jeffrey Loria because he'd had the bad history with the Expos, which wasn't entirely his fault. But I thought this was a terrible choice. I was actually in Key West with my wife when the news came down that Jeff Laurie was going to own the team. And I thought, oh, no, this is not going to end well. He right. doesn't have a good ownership history. I'm not sure how much money he has. He's been entirely subsidized by Major League Baseball. But I felt as if with all the threats, all the animosity in the national media toward Miami, I said, look, it's not the player's fault. I'm a player-first kind of fan. Mm-hmm. I go to the park to root for the players. I don't go to the park to root for the owners. So I've tried to separate those two things. And obviously, it's much nicer when you have an ownership group like the current group that seems to have a consistent plan that doesn't seem to be deviating from that plan in their short history of ownership. Whereas with the previous ownership of Jeff Loria, you never had a plan, which was so frustrating. It's not that you didn't hire good baseball people. It's not that we didn't have our share of excitement. We won a World Series under his ownership, which as baseball prospectus has pointed out, was actually half due to the previous ownership group Correct. and half due to the decisions of Dave Dombrowski and half due to the decisions of Larry Beinfest, which I thought was rather fascinating. But whatever it took, we won that World Series. Things looked pretty good for a few years at Pro Player, but obviously the fact that uh, being Jeff Loria could not stick to any consistent plan. I think the new ownership group sticks to its plan. 
so far we're seeing some of the fruits of that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there was always this overwhelming cloud of ambiguity of what the Marlins were going to do under the Loria era, right? Whether it was highlighted with Jennings eventually coming down and being an interim manager, whether it was the often spoken about trades, um, the where they went for it too early or too prematurely, or then did not go for it enough when they were closer to contention. Uh, you know, you bring up a really good point. That 2003 title, a lot of it can be a tip of the cap to Dabrowski. It didn't have to be um, the fact they almost inherited a championship team. And then they did make moves, of course, to solidify that championship team uh, towards the end part of that year. But I, I think it's a very important point that you make that a lot of individuals often overlook. I, I completely agree with you on the ambiguity of the Loria era on the doubts of where his interests really were. That's at least my personal point to that. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm excited. I'm excited about the changes that have happened. I'm excited that you pinpointed something uh, that we need to highlight. The fact that he really does seem like he's going to stick to a plan. And when I say he really, I just mean the whole Sherman ownership group, whether mm -hmm. it's Derek Jeter, because he's the lightning post rod that everyone always goes at. But really, it's the Sherman ownership group. It's Jeter running the, the the baseball foundation of it. It's Hill having a good sense of the plan. I, I agree with you. Will it work? We don't know, right? Um, but at the very least, that cloud of ambiguity seems like it's gone. Uh, let me let me get mm -hmm. your opinion on some of the very concrete changes that they've made. How did you feel about the changes to the stadium, the, the changes to the rebranding and, and the colors, and, and even some of the transactions that we've seen, the baseball changes? I actually thought the changes of the colors was welcome, but I have not been too picky when it comes to the uh, history of the different different colors and different brands of the franchise. I pretty much tended to like them all, but I think it was necessary for the new ownership group to sort of completely distance themselves from the previous ownership group and say, we're, we're headed in this new direction. We're not like rebuilding the organization from the bottom up. But we're actually uh, changing the look and the feel of the entire organization, which I I can completely understand that. That being said, the one thing that I did like about the Loria group is the fact that Loria was an art dealer mm -hmm. and had a fondness for eclecticism and color when it came to the interior of the park. So I actually liked a lot of the funkiness of the previous uh, look of the stadium. Gotcha. But that being said, it would have been inappropriate to keep the look of the old stadium, that is the old design patterns, and try to mix it with the new color scheme. If you're going to create a new color scheme, you pretty much have to redo everything. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that uh, they they tried, obviously, to distance themselves, right? It's interesting because in 2012, Lawyer does the same, right? I mean, obviously, it's an entirely new stadium. It's an entirely new organization that they're building, very Miami-centric versus Florida. But he tries to distance himself from uh, some of the pinstripes, some of the difficulties, some of the emptiness of pro player or Joe Robbie or Dolphin Stadium or Landshark Stadium, mm -hmm. whatever we want to call them. And right. then now this ownership group does the same. And really, I mean, I think in businesses, we see that, right? Someone comes in, changes, and they have wholesale changes of what the image or the branding is of that company. It seems like Sherman and, and Jeter wanted to distance themselves from Loria. Do you think that you've spoken about the plan? Do you think that on the field, they're going to be able to start getting to that point as well? It's very easy to execute a rebranding. It's a little bit more difficult to execute an on-field rebuild. How do you feel about how they're handling that thus far? Basically, I would give them very high marks for 
what they're doing with the entire organization. In fact, I remember back to your first Fish Stripes podcast and how much I liked your soliloquy about the various points you made about the necessity of the rebuild, why it made sense. I kept nodding in agreement with everything you were saying. So, so basically, I, I, I sort of like the, the fact that Fish Stripes, out of all the sites that are out there, is the site actually talking a sophisticated way about what it takes to build a consistently competitive baseball team, which is the topic, of course, of my 2006 book, how do you actually effectively build a long-term competitive team? You have to have incredible amount of depth. And I think people underappreciate to what extent you can't simply have a quality team at the major league level with no depth at the minor leagues. You have to have a minor league system that is stocked. Mm-hmm. If you don't have that, you're in trouble. That's equally true, by the way, even if you're a high-revenue team. Because even high-revenue teams understand the importance of depth. Look at the Dodgers, look at the Yankees, look at the Astros. Basically, their entire franchise building with the various you know, ownership groups that have taken over and have been successful have been about creating as much depth throughout the system as well as instructing their players in the system in a, in a very systematic fashion. Mm-hmm. So that each layer of the system reinforces the other layer. That basically was entirely missing from the previous structure which is something that Don Mattingly has been very perceptive about and very open about. He was frustrated that when he would get players from the minors, they simply weren't instructed the way he felt they should be instructed. And he's been pretty candid about that and I think pretty excited about the change of direction. Yeah, it's interesting. You bring up Donnie. A lot of, you know, uh, a lot of rumors, a lot of individual opinions is what we'll call them on what will happen with him. Right. Will he still be within the organization? Will he still hold his current position? There's obviously his last year. Will they bring in another piece? But the reality is, is that at least lately, the momentum has been, uh, we'll say, moving towards moving towards him being an amazing part of this rebuild. The fact that these young guys are starting to rally around him, the fact that he has really been able to, uh, you know, he's come from such, and I think Glenn Geffner actually illustrated this, he's come from such uh, winning organizations, you can say, whether it was his time playing for the Yankees or whether it was his time coaching for the Dodgers, and then now he's handling this rebuild like a pro, even though it's the first time he's ever really had to go through something like this. So I, I guess um, on Twitter, this might get me a little bit of a feedback. I'm yeah, not right. so certain that Donnie uh, is, is no, is, isn't retained rather as a Marlins manager moving forward, or at the very least as a part of the organization in some fashion, because he seems to really get what they're doing. And he seems to understand that system that you illustrated uh i don't want to move on from the book quite yet when you're talking about team building and roster construction and and in especially for low revenue teams that's a topic we spoke about before coming on mm-hmm. can, can you illustrate some of the points that you found and that you discussed in your book um that you feel is successful that you would sure. you would you would put into play if you were the owner or the gm of a team of course, there's so much information that teams have to acquire and to make their modern-day organization successful. We can talk about analytics. We can talk about same metrics. Obviously, Fish Stripes has talked a lot of very positive things about the current direction of the organization, 
terms of their greater focus on athletics, their greater focus on sabermetrics. But I think to actually accentuate the important aspect of this, it's not enough just to focus on these things. You have to constantly be at the cutting edge of what's happening. Because the whole secret to the money ball wrote a book about the Oakland A's, the whole secret to the Oakland A's success, as well as other teams who kind of followed those models, is that they were a bit ahead of other organizations in certain ways. Mm-hmm. They identified areas that were being systematically undervalued by other teams. Those areas aren't constant. They're consistently shifting. Of course, the latest trend is to try to integrate analytics with teaching on the field. So it's not simply about acquiring players based on past performance. It's about helping to improve players' current performance. And I see very encouraging signs with the fish. But in fairness, it would be completely unreasonable to expect them to be where Tampa is, to expect them to be where Houston is, to expect them to be where the Yankees or the Dodgers are. But the fact that they're at least headed in that direction the fact that there's fairly significant investments in analytics, which basically quadruple analytics hires from the regime and continuing to make new hires in that direction is extremely encouraging. So I, I don't want to put you on the spot with this one, but I'm really interested in your perspective. Um, you know, you speak to how this is a novice situation for the Marlins. It's being built from the ground up when we're talking about analytics, but not just analytics. I guess really the question is, is there a risk factor with the current Marlins organization that you identify, or is it just that it's new to them and that this is a novice situation for them? Um, you know, I don't, I don't really want us to um, feel like we have to come up with something that's just wrong or something that we would change or something that's negative, but I wonder if there is. Is there something you've observed that you would say, well, this might be a risk factor for them. This might be something they're overlooking um, from what you can see from the outside looking in, of course. Or is it just that this is new for them and they're behind the game per se? I I suspect a couple of different things are going on simultaneously. The first is the fact that since they took over the franchise, they've operated as kind of a hybrid their first year. They inherited some people with the previous franchise. So basically, the first draft looked very different from the second draft, which mm-hmm. basically sort of reinforces the point that I'm making about this hybrid situation. The second draft, I thought, was much more of what I would have expected this team to do. Because the second draft, they brought in more of their own people. They had, I think, more of an organizational focus and more of a consistency with their plan. I was extremely excited to hear so many sports writers, including people that just said nothing but bad things about the Marlins through their entire history, basically finally come out and say, you know, this draft was not only good, this draft may be one of the top three or five drafts in the country, if not the best draft in the country. And obviously, we can't be sure until the players actually hit the field and that kind of thing. But just to have that kind of positive press reinforce what people like you and I have been saying about the potential of this new franchise was encouraging. You're amazing. You really are. You really are. You're amazing. You. Okay, I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave us with this last question because it's one of the, again one of the ones that we spoke about prior to coming on, and I think it's an interesting one. Uh, you know, you said that you have a fondness for rooting for quote unquote the underdogs. Uh, I, I wonder if that just comes from from you in any particular place, or if you can elaborate a little bit on why that is 
that is something that you are okay with and that you are comfortable with. Yes, it starts from the fact that I'm a son of a truck driver, a working class kid, but became a college professor. So basically, I've seen the kind of obstacles he's had to overcome just to make a living. When it comes to the players versus the owners, I'm a player first guy. I'm skeptical of virtually all ownership groups. Mm -hmm. I think it's wise to be skeptical because as far as I'm concerned, the players play the game. They deserve as much revenue as they can possibly get. Absolutely. They don't go to the park to see the owners. But then there's a flip side to this, which sometimes comes across as somewhat contradictory to friends that may share my rooting for the working class underdog. They may not understand why I would root for the Marlins as a, as a low-revenue franchise, considering what some consider a rather odious history with the corporate you know, uh, sham of, of the way the ballpark was, was financed by the public when, in fact, the owner was rich enough to finance much of it himself. So as, how can you root for a team like the Marlins? Because my rooting for the Marlins coincides with my underdog ethos. Because there are so many parts of the country that seem to think that Miami doesn't deserve a baseball team. Miami shouldn't have. Remember back in 97, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't remember it as clearly as I do, obviously. But back in 97, even when we made the World Series for the first time, Bob Costas, who I like as a, as a sportscaster, and I grew up with him, basically couldn't hide his snide commentary about how dare the Marlins buy themselves a World Series. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking the audacity of this. You know, I mean, look at who the Marlins have been competing against all year. We didn't spend that much more money than a lot of other teams. Right. All of a sudden, we're being accused of buying a win. And again, we, we do it in 2003 with a bunch of young prospects, and you still had the notion among traditionalists that we somehow don't deserve to be there. Right. So basically, that has just sort of fed my admiration for the Marlins as a kind of underdog team. Everyone's against this, even when Loria was the target. That even made me root for the team more because so many people wanted to see the franchise fail. So that is, that is an extra incentive for me, rooting for a team that has sort of low revenues and has to fight to, uh, to basically attain the success of more wealthy franchises. Yeah, absolutely. If there is an underdog franchise, it's the Marlins. And I think at the very least, because I agree with you, some might say, well, how can you be for you know the working class? And then we talk about Marlins Park deal and, and the situation that the community might not love the Marlins as some of us do. Uh, but they are they really embody, especially now with this ownership group, the the uh, the image of what an underdog is. And with as much power has been put against them with this rebuild and not even the ownership group, just the Marlins in general uh, you, with this rebuild, with some of the things that they're doing with some of the statements about improving the stadiums, but not improving the, the on field. It's incredibly um, illustrative that you yourself has identified them as an underdog and the way that you did, you know, I lied because I said that was gonna be the last question, but if you have another two minutes, I'm interested in getting your perspective on the Rays situation and the fact that, you know, they, they got, um, approval to look at this somewhat pseudo relocation uh, split team situation. If you have the time and if you don't, you let me know for, and I'll, I'll, sure. I'll cut it off. Um, wh what are your thoughts on that situation? Of course, Tampa has become my American League team, which I think I indicated mm -hmm. in some of my notes to you, because I never had an American League team until the Rays were founded as an expansion franchise. I've sort of latched on to Tampa through all their bad years and their good years and 
very smart franchise and the sabermetric franchise very attracted to that kind of that kind of organization. So for all the reasons I'm excited about the Marlins new direction, I've been excited about the Rays, you know, last decade, last fifteen years in terms of of, of where they have headed. Now in terms of the relocation, I think it would be awful if Major League Baseball moved the franchise. Because consider that could have easily happened to us down here in Miami. Mm-hmm. And how awful we would have felt, even though there aren't that many of us. And they could have easily done that, but they didn't. I think Tampa has a future. I think the best part of their future would be to build a new ballpark in the Tampa area as opposed to the St. Pete area. Because they have a lot more fans on the Tampa side. Right. But I think if that were to happen... There's no reason why that team couldn't do well there, which is indicated by their television ratings. And their television ratings have generally been pretty good. It's just that people won't go to that ballpark. Yeah, I I tend to agree. And I'm sure you've heard my thought on the whole split home with uh, Tampa and Montreal situation. I don't think that that ends up happening. I think that we end up on one of the extremes where it is either that the government there or the owners, as it should be, um, at least my opinion, ends up building something in the Tampa area, or there is an outright relocation. I don't think that the the splitting of seasons in Montreal and then in Tampa, although approved for them to look into it, I don't think it's really feasible. I don't think it'll happen. Um, but I, I just wanted to make sure I got your thoughts before mm-hmm. we let them. I, I very much enjoyed your take on it which is that it's pretty outlandish and it's never going to happen, which is basically why I didn't address it directly because you already spoken to it so effectively. I just think this is a tactic on the part of the, the current Tampa ownership to try to extort more money from the public and try to get mm-hmm. what they want. And of course, you have to expect that's what they're going to do, but hopefully there could be some kind of understanding that if the public does come forward and contribute anything to this park, number one, they shouldn't contribute too much. Mm-hmm. They basically should, should, it should be a, a true partnership. And that means the ownership should contribute a lot because the ownership is very wealthy. And I, I think under, you know, with that caveat, I would love to see, you know, Tampa have a better situation there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Dr. Cox, you have been amazing. Before we go, please just, I know you might kill me for having you do this, but let the individuals know where they can find your work. Okay, basically, I have six books. But in terms of your immediate audience, my 2006 baseball book would probably uh, pick their interest the most, which is called Free Agency and Competitive Balance. You can go to the website of the McFarland Publishing Company. You can also go to Amazon. But my authorship is under Ronald W. Cox. It's under Ronald W. Cox as opposed to Ron Cox you should still be able to find my book on Amazon. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Thank you sincerely from the bottom of my heart. I'm happy that we could take our email conversations and bring them on to the podcast. Thank you again. Okay. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate the sense of community that the Fish Stripes podcast is helping to create. I'm pretty excited about continuing to be part of this community for a long time. Absolutely. It definitely, it definitely comes from the heart. All right, I'm going to let you go. You enjoy the rest of your Sunday, and as always, go fish. Go fish.